Hi, my name is Tzemach, and my guest today is Sholom Aleichem. And today we're going to talk about Ukrainians and Jews. So without further ado, Sholom Aleichem. Hello, and yes. thank, you for the, thank you for the opportunity to talk about um, what may be a controversial subject, um, even more controversial than um, the subject that we've been speaking about the last month or two, uh, namely Lubavitch. Um, so I want to speak about Jews and the Ukraine and the war that's going on between Russia and the Ukraine and the Jewish quote, end quote, stake in this war. And I want to start by giving a little background. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but a little background about Jews and the Ukraine. And I'm going to start in the year 1648. Uh, prior to that, a good part of the, um, shall we call them, plantations, uh, real estate, farms, uh, large agricultural estates in the Ukraine were owned by the Polish nobility. And as was true in many countries, the nobility itself had very little interest or ability to manage these estates. Um, one needed to run um, breweries, one needed to sell timber uh, and sell, send that timber off on rivers, river transportation to Poland or Germany. Um, there are all sorts of business activities and the nobility was more interested in uh, gambling, sexual escapades and, and um, uh, playing politics in uh, Warsaw or Vilna. So who did they hire to manage these estates? Well, the Jews, because Jews had some sort of, whether it's natural or not, I don't know, uh, ability for business. Uh, so the Jews ran the breweries on these estates. Uh, the Jews did, were in the lumber business. Uh, they cut down the trees and then they were uh, packed and shipped off via the rivers to uh, Germany. And, you know, there are also grains being grown that had to be sold. And, you know, I'm no expert about what, what goes on on a large estate, but you know, it's obvious that there's a lot of business. And so the Jews were the managers, the Poles were the owners, and who exactly was doing the manual labor? Well, that is the Ukrainians, the Ukrainian peasants, were working for the Ukrainians. In 1648, a massive countrywide rebellion broke out in the Ukraine, led by someone who I guess was a charismatic leader, Bogdan Khmelnytsky. And um, this was a, a revolt that um, took, took over all of the Ukraine. And Khmelnytsky uh, had a large following and uh, its aim was, I suspect, economic and political, which is to free the Ukrainian peasants from the yoke of the Polish nobility. But as 
many instances is the case, the Jews found themselves in the middle because, as I mentioned, the Poles were probably were not in the Ukraine. The Polish nobility and the Polish uh, owners were in Paris or in Warsaw or maybe in Vilna, you know, uh, having a good time. And um, so the Jews were on the scene and the Jews were got the main uh, thrust of the anger of the Ukrainians. And this war or rebellion lasted for several years. Uh, in Hebrew, it's known as the Gezeros Tach Betat, the, the decrees, and uh, it's more aptly translated, the massacres of uh, 1648, 1649, but it, went, it, it even lasted uh, later. It lasted several years afterwards. Um, now, the Poles did send in large armies to subdue the Ukrainians, and uh, they, you know, and I think, in fact, they did. In fact, the Polish army was successful in subduing the revolt. Uh, but, you know, this cost the lives of something like 100,000 Jews in, in the Ukraine. So something like 100,000 Jews were uh, were massacred in the Ukraine. And but that, that's, that's the first chapter of well, I call it recent Ukrainian Jewish history, but it's the first chapter of Jewish history in Poland in the last seven. Hundred thousand is like hundred thousand is like half of population back then. Well, that's that's what they say. There are a lot of Jews killed. I mean, let's let's um, you know let's bring it down to fifty thousand. But they're clearly uh, you know I, I, the figures I've seen are between. Uh, sixty thousand and a hundred thousand. I mean, uh, I mean, complete communities, uh, Berdichev and uh, other communities in the um, in the Ukraine were decimated. Uh, let's see, I have some small figures that, that I've gotten from Klotskin's uh, you know, book about the Gazeros of Tachitat, and let's just go through a few of these. Uh, we have time for this. It's not in a major rush. Let me just see what I can find here. I did copy down some of these um, figures. Um, so in uh, Berdicha, let's see. The um, okay. So so I don't have the exact figures. I have the exact the figures for towns broken down in a later massacre. So, but Paul Stamper who is not a, um, he's a professor at the Hebrew University, he's an American, uh, just for identification purposes, his father was conservative rather in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Saul Stanford is not a hyper-nationalist, uh, and I, I do know him, and he's written some excellent um, monographs on the history of the yeshiva in Volosian and, and and the history of yeshivas in Lithuania in general. And, he has written in a article in the uh, Jewish Studies uh, Journal that between 60 to 200,000 Jews were killed in the Ukraine in 1648. Uh, and this is a figure by an academic scholar who, as far as I can tell, has no ax to grind. So that's 60 to 200,000. So let's say, you know, um, let's go for the bottom figure. Let's say 60,000 Jews were, were, were killed. Let's just... Uh, 
Um, in, in a scholarly edition of the classic work about this massacre, the classic work was by Rabbi Nathan Hanover, who was contemporary at that time. He was a Kabbalist and a rabbi who died in Prague. Uh, he wrote a book called Yvain Mitsula, uh, The Deaths of, uh, of Har, or whatever you want to translate it. So it's from the language used in Tanakh. And, um, and Ivo, the uh, Yiddish uh, historical society, um, in the before World War II, put out a academic edition of that book by uh, Dr. Jacob Klotzkin, I believe, did that. Um, no, Jacob Schatzky, I'm sorry, Jacob, Dr. Jacob Schatzky, and that's an academic edition which is heavily footnoted and uh, annotated. And uh, so this is not a myth created by um, Jewish uh, studies people in order to bolster the, um, the sense of Judaism about, of Jewish students on a college campus. This is something that really happened and uh, there, there's more than one contemporary account of what happened. And uh, besides uh, Shatsky's edition, there are other, there are other books. So um, I'll just repeat, you see 60 and 200,000 Jews were killed by this gentleman, if we can call him that, Bogdan Khmelnytsky. Now, chapter two, 100 years later, uh, another Ukrainian uh, leader, and he was the head of a Ukrainian group called the Hydamics, and that term keeps on coming up in Ukrainian history. I'm not exactly sure what it means, uh, who the Hydamics were. Were they a genetic group of Ukrainians or were they a uh, name of a certain army battalions? It's like, or maybe they were both like the Gurkhas in the British army. They were both people from a certain area in India or Nepal. And, and later on, there was, certain units in the British army were called the Gurkhas. I can't say, I'm not, I'm not an expert about that. But Abba Gunther, this guy, A.B.U. Gunther, uh, also led a revolt or whatever in the Ukraine and killed tens of thousands of Jews. Now, it's interesting to note that um, the great Hasidic leader, the great grandson of Nachman of Braslov, uh, the great grandson of the Balshemto, the Nachman Braslover, uh, who lived in the Ukraine, uh, did not die in Uman. Uh, or maybe he did, but didn't live in Uman. That, let's just to play it safe. Let's say he didn't live in Uman. But when he was dying, he wanted to go to Uman because he wanted to be buried in Uman. Why did he want to be buried in Uman? Because Uman was a holy city? No. Because Uman uh, had a nice cemetery that you can look over the river? No. But Nahu wanted to be buried in Uman because Uman was the burial place. It was the, the killing fields of tens of thousands of Jews who were killed by Abba Bunta. And, you know, I would hope that most of the Braslover Hasidim and other Nachschleppers, if I can use the word, and that's what they are, Nachschleppers, who go to Uman, they don't know the first thing about Jasper Hasidus, and they're just going there uh, because for various reasons. You know, I was about to say something, but I'll backtrack about uh, why they go there, because um, I, I don't want to be... Uh, yeah, here's, here's, we have a, uh, here we're having a problem right away. And we're having private conversation, you know, thunder and lightnings. Here we're going into podcast. And you're so scientific and so demure. 
And so not willing to offend anybody's hello. We're here to offend people. I haven't gotten I haven't gotten to the main thrust of this. I'm giving a background. And, All right. um, okay. I, I was actually going to say that one reason uh, a lot of people go to Uman is because they want, they go there for a good time. I mean, whores are cheap there. Alcohol is probably very cheap, and uh, a lot of people go there because you can have a good time in Uman for a very cheap amount of money. And at the same time, when you go back to your native town, whatever that is, B'nai Brock, Jerusalem, uh, uh, California, you'll be excited. You'll be a big tzaddik. You know, I just spent Russian in Uman. And, uh, you know, so you have it both ways. You're, as they say, you're, you inherit both worlds. Um, <laughs> but that's not what I'm really talking about. You know, but I'm just saying that there was another massacre in, in Uman and tens of thousands of Jews were killed here. That, that's just the fact. Now, you know, I just want to go on. Again, with the Ukraine and with Jews, I can't tell you what happened, you know, after um, the 19th century. I, I haven't heard that there were any major um, slaughters of Jews, but clearly after World War I or after 1918, between 1918 and 1922, um, there were massive slaughters on a massive scale, massive killings of Ukrainian Jews, massive. Um, now we don't have to bargain of between 60,000 and 200,000, but probably our, our much better estimate would be between 150,000 to 200,000 of the number of Jews killed in the Ukraine. Now, besides Jews being killed, the number, you know, we, in Jewish history, this is not talked about, and Bialik, when he was writing about um, a poem about the Kishinev pogrom, uh, Bialik, um, for the sake of uh, civility, or I don't know if that's the right term, Bialik and, and the Orthodox certainly left out one part of the massacres, and that's the number of rapes that was going on in, in, uh, in the Ukraine. I mean, many of these Jewish women were raped, and then killed, but many were raped and left alive. And, and um, of course, it's not something that Jews know how to deal with. Um, we just don't know how to deal with it about rape because it has all sorts of side effects uh, to Jewish history and contemporary Jewish society. But, you know, even forgetting about rape and looting and pillaging, close to 150,000 Jews or more were killed in all these Ukrainian cities. And here I do have just some figures of people who were killed. I'm I, I just basing myself on Shotsky. In Uman, uh, the famous Uman where Nachman is buried, 40,000 Jews were killed by, by, uh, by um, Petluria, by the Ukrainian um, government between 1918 and 1922. Just in Uman, which is a large city, 40,000 Jews were killed. In Berdichev, the figure I have is 2,000. Yeah, in, yes, but, here, but but Petluru is after Abnachman passed on, you know? No, yeah, yeah. But uh, it's a large city and 40,000 Jews were killed. No, Abnachman wasn't alive by then. Um, 
In, in the area around Kia, the figure is around 60,000. Um, estimates that I've seen is that over 130,000 children were, were orphaned in this war. And, you know, in Jutomir, I have here 1,500. I mean, these numbers add up and there are hundreds of small towns. This is, this is a slaughter on a massive scale and slaughter that if these Ukrainians had the technology, if the Ukrainians had the technology, there wouldn't be 100,000 to 150,000 Jews slaughtered. One could just see from the hate and the numbers that were just slaughtered by people with uh, guns and um, knives that had they the technology that uh, existed in the 20th century in, the, in, in Europe, in Western Europe, mainly uh, cyclone gas and other things, they would have there would have been another massive Holocaust perpetrated in the Ukraine. There's no question about it. These people were after to kill every single Jew in the Ukraine. And of course, you know, one can say there are all sorts of reasons, just like with Melnitsky, we can come up with economic reasons why Melnitsky uh, did what he did. But the fact is he did do it. And the same thing is true in 1918 to 1922. You know, of course the Ukrainians claimed that they were fighting the communists and Jews equal communists. That's the mathematical formula. Jews equal communists. You saw a Jew, you saw a communist. You saw a communist, you saw a Jew. And that's what these people claimed. And so this resulted in a major massacre, major. You know, um, you see the pictures uh, after it's, it's it, it, you know, it's unbelievable. Now, so some, some of us are wondering, probably, if anyone's listening to this, how come we don't know about it? We don't know about it for two reasons. Number one, the communists, and I say thank God the communists won this war in Russia. Thank God, because if not, not one Jew in the Ukraine would have been left alive, but Trotsky and the Red Army did win, and it saved basically the Jews of the Ukraine. You know, how tragic and, and ironic that is, but the fact that the Red Army beat the White Army and its allies, the Ukrainian nationalists, is, is a miracle. You know, nothing less than a miracle, because whatever Jews were survived in Ukraine was due to that. But on the other hand, because the communists won, the communists were not interested in, in that part of the history. As a matter of fact, they wanted to erase it. They didn't want to have this idea that two nationalities were fighting each other or that the Ukrainians were killing Jews. No, the new Soviet uh, government or the new Soviet regime uh, was supposed to be a regime where all nationalities love each other and live in peace and in the Soviet paradise. So they didn't want anything to do with um, perpetuating uh, the history of, of the Ukrainian atrocities and the Jews in the Ukraine, and, and there was a Jewish historical commission in the Ukraine, and a gentleman there, I think it's an uncle and a nephew, Cherikover, one of them was a historian of the Jewish Hellenistic period, but one of them spent day and night in the Ukraine gathering material. What was the, his name uh, again? What was his name? Cherikover. 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 Is that a last name? Yeah. Chirikower, T-C-H-E-R, 
K-O-W-E-R. Thank you. And, and he, he managed to escape um, the Soviet Union and he went to Berlin and he kept on gathering the materials. Some of what his materials were left in the Soviet Union, but most of what he managed to get out. And I don't think he published the, his magnum opus about the Ukrainian persecutions until his arrival in the United States in the after World War II, but it was published by YIVO. And as much as I love Yiddish, it's my mother tongue, it was published in Yiddish. Unfortunately, it wasn't published in English. And to this day, I do not believe it has seen um, a translator or a translation. So it was published in Yiddish. And it, it is a chronicle um, of the Ukrainian persecutions between 1918 and 1922. I do not believe it has pictures, but there are other books that has pictures if anyone doubts what happened. Um, now, there is a little bit of a coda to this. Uh, the man who is identified with these massacres, and he was hardly the only Ukrainian leader involved in the massacres, but he probably was one of the chief instigators, was the head of the, uh, he was the Minister of Defense and the Minister of War uh, of the Ukrainian Directorate, which ran to Ukraine for a good period of time between 1918 and 1922. Uh, Simeon Petluria, I believe, was his name. And Simeon Petlura. Yeah. So he, he was the chief instigator of all. And Anyway, he, he left um, the Ukraine and he went to, uh, I believe he was in France. Um, and a, a Jew by the name of Sean Schwarzbart, whose relatives had been killed by this uh, Petluria uh, and by Ukrainians. Sean Schwarzbart was a, uh, a working class Jew who, uh, whose Jewish heart couldn't stand it anymore. So he laid, he uh, waited for uh, Pet Luria on a street in Paris in 1922, I believe. He waited for him, ambushed him, and killed him. He, uh, this is Sean Schwarzbach, killed Pet Luria, shot him, and killed him. Um, so the Ukrainians in Paris and others were demanding justice. On the other hand, Schwarzbart was ready to face trial, and Schwarzbart was put on trial. But interestingly enough, a court in France, in France, home of the, uh, of the Dreyfus uh, case, in France, later home of Marshal Pétain, Admiral Vichy, in that France, in that anti-Semitic country called France, which of course has a liberal streak throughout its history too, I'm willing to concede that. And there we found the liberal streak. A French court in 1922 acquitted Schwarzbart of what he did or found him guilty and fined him the, co the cost of a trial, which is, I think, came out to be $6. And they sent uh, Schwarzbart home with a pat on the back. And because the French people and the French um, 
judicial system knew that Schwarzbart was hardly uh, a criminal, that Schwarzbart was right in what he did. You know, that, that the lawyer was on the street, Schwarzbart was waiting for him, took out his pistol and killed him. And the free world didn't care because uh, but killing Petloria, in my opinion, was like killing Himmler or killing, um, you know, uh, Heydrich or Goebbels or whatever. Yeah, but, um, but but the truth is that it wasn't just Simeon Petlura, it were others, uh, even the Russian yeah. army, Polish army. Everybody was uh, uh, in on this game of killing Jews at that time. There were, but no, 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 none, none of the what you're mentioning had anything on the mass scale that was going on in Ukraine. And in many instances, I mean, I, I, I do mean in Ukraine, uh, pogroms in Ukraine done by by Poles, done by Russian Red Army, done by uh, General Dinikin. Uh, they all were in this game. Right, but none of these, none of the people you mentioned had an institutional government, and and, and Petluria did. I mean, there was a Ukrainian government in Kiev, and Petluria was part of it. And on the other hand, the, the pogroms that happened in Vilna, which were staged by um, perhaps members of the White Army and, and perhaps uh, renegade Polish soldiers, um, I'm not justifying it, I'm gonna be the last person in the world to defend anti-Semitic uh, outbursts. But the, the, even, you know, I mean, even like in, in, uh, in white Russia, in Stalin, in Karlin, there were pogroms. But, but, you know, after the pogrom happened, peace came back to that region. But that didn't happen to Ukraine. In Ukraine, this went on for two or three years. And many of the cities I mentioned, and many that I didn't, turned over 16 times. It's not as if the, the, the Ukrainians came, killed the Jews, and left and said next. No, they turned them over. You know, Ukrainians came, then maybe let's say the Reds came, the Ukrainians came back. They, this this wasn't just uh, a one-shot one deal that, uh, you know, with the Red Army. And by the way, the Red Army was involved in some some massacres of, of Jews, some, was involved in some, and most of the soldiers who were involved in that were Ukrainians. There were Ukrainians who signed up for the Red Army. So let's not forget about that. If not for the Red Army, if not for Trotsky and the Red Army, there wouldn't be one Jew left in the Ukraine, not one. Because the only thing between the whites and the Ukrainians was the Red Army. That, that was the only thing stopping. Yes, there were, there were atrocities committed but under the flag, the Red Army flag. But most of the people, interestingly enough, who were fighting, um, Un, you know, who, who Red Army soldiers who were uh, committing atrocity against Jews were uh, were uh, Ukrainians who joined the Red Army. There were plenty of them. Um, it, and it's also interesting that uh, in the in the beginning of the 20th century, in World War One, um, the American uh, I don't know which group it is, but a, a help a help organization, assistance organization from America, sent two courageous Americans to uh, see what's going on there. And that's Rabbi Dr. Israel Friedlander, who is a professor at the Jewish Theological Seminary. And part, his wife is part of the uh, Bentwich family from England. And Rabbi Cantor, I can't remember the first name, George Cantor. Um, they were sent over and they were killed. So they were killed by, by 
in the um, in the short resumes of what they were killed, it's indicated that they were killed by Red Army soldiers. Interesting. But when I started doing more research on that thing, I started seeing something different, that when they were killed, the description was that they were killed by soldiers dressed as Red Army soldiers. And that was important. Now I began to think these soldiers were dressed as Red Army soldiers, which implies that they really weren't. The implication there is that more likely than not, that the murderers of Friedlander and Rabbi Cantor were not Red Army soldiers, but they were soldiers in that, in a, in a part of the universe, Poland, at least Eastern Poland, White Russia, the Ukraine, which was completely uh, uh, lawless and, and, and the portal to hell. And so who knows what was going on there. But um, in any, um, what I've read in, in the Red Army, um, you know, they're hardly uh, saints, but again, they they uh, provided the only uh, protection in many cases against massacres. Now, I don't know, you know, then the Red Russians took over and they were fighting uh, a new Polish army that uh, extended to Kiev, if, uh, and, uh, and- Okay, so uh, how, how, did, how did we manage to forget about all of this? To forget about it? Yeah. What do you mean? Well, I want to move fast forward and just to see how, how did we, how this massive event was erased from a national memory. And not only national right. memory of Ukrainians, but also national right. memory of Jews. It's a good point. And I, I just want to finish one thing. You know, uh, I may have left some things out, but I just want to go to one last place. Um, so now the Russians take over, the Russians, whatever, you know, you know more about what the communists' uh, nationalities policy was um, than I do um, between 1921 and uh, 1941. Um, but then the, the Germans, the Nazis, uh, you know, got to Russia, to Ukraine. And we all know that uh, when they came to Ukraine, Many Ukrainians greeted them as liberators. I mean, that's just a fact. I mean, many Ukrainians held out flowers and Ukrainian girls and, and, uh, and women greeted them and kissed them and greeted the Nazis as, as liberators. Um, you know, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure that was true in Minsk. I'm not sure, so sure that was true in Vitebsk or in Smolensk. Maybe, but I'm not so sure. You know, but it but it did happen to Ukraine. It did, and uh, then we had Babi Yar. Now, I don't know how many Jews were killed in Babi Yar. Was it a hundred thousand? Do you know how many? I, were I don't in know Bobby exactly. Yar? I don't know exactly. Right. I don't know. But it was a tremendous. There was more than Jews. enough. Put it this way. Right, and the Germans could hardly accomplish that by themselves. And um, and the German army, in most cases, the Wehrmacht, was not, did not, I'm not going to whitewash them. I don't want to be accused of being a collaborator and put up, put on trial with, with Marshal Pétain. But um, the Wehrmacht 
wasn't involved in killing civilians by and large. Um, I'm not saying there weren't exceptions, but so we had SS forces and who, were, who was helping them? Ukrainians. And how many Ukrainian SS divisions were there? Ukrainians who volunteered to join the SS. There are whole sorts of, and in both in the Waffen SS, which were SS that were combat divisions, and in the SS Gestapo. I mean, thousands, tens of thousands. My parents, both of my parents, spent long time. My father spent between 1939 and 1945 under German um, uh, jail. Uh, he was in a prisoner of war camp. Then he was in concentration camps. My mother started in 1941, and you know, it's not that they're telling me Ukrainians, Ukrainians, but in every story and every, my father wrote his memoirs right after the war, um, 60 pages fresh. He wrote them right after he was liberated. Unlike many of these memoirs that are being uh, mass produced now that are written 40 years later, uh, like Jack Eisner, you know, or whatever his name is, uh, who writes, uh, you know, he wrote his memoirs in the Warsaw Ghetto, and every day he's uh, having sex with a new girl. I mean, uh, or another guy is writing his memoirs 40 years later and writing how how he smuggled uh, cigarettes and became a millionaire in the ghetto. I, I, I don't hold much of these memoirs. My father wrote his memoirs right after the war. And the guards in all these camps were Ukrainians. Ukrainians. Not white Russians, not Russians, not Tsigayner, Ukrainians. And we know that in the trials in America, Demyanek, other such creatures, all Ukrainians, all Ukrainians. Now, sure, some guy out there is going to say, hey, there was General Vlasov, a Russian uh, collaborator with the Germans. Yeah, you're right. There was. There was a General Vlasov who raised the army uh, to fight with Hitler. True. That doesn't whitewash the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians were hardly the only people, uh, if you want to call them people, uh, involved in this. The Latvians and the Lithuanians and the Estonians and the Romanians. But Ukraine has a special place going back at least to 1648. Special place in Jewish history. Special place. Uh, just quickly, Khmelnytsky, Ababunta, Petloria and everything that was going on between 1918 and 1922, then Babi Yar. Okay, After you know, we, 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 have been, we, we have dealt on this uh, blog on the subject of um, forgetfulness and erased history. Right. So uh, there are many aspects why history, this history has been erased. And, well, you know, obviously this is Holocaust, but not just Holocaust. It is that uh, Stalin instigated a famine, which they call Holodomor, which is literally translates uh, uh, death from starving. So this Holodomor, there are different numbers in it, but some numbers in it um, that maybe between three and five millions died. And when you have such a massive numbers, Everything else drowns in memory. And in this case, it wasn't just uh, this famine, uh, well, which you know, Ukrainians suffered from, but also, you know, the well, event of the you, Holocaust itself, which took out close to a million people in Ukraine. First of all, what you're saying may explain why 
the non-Jewish population in Russia doesn't care about what happened. And, you know, even if there wasn't a famine, uh, which allegedly was instigated by Lazar Kaganovich, of course, the Ukrainians need a Jewish, a Jewish scapegoat, and they found Stalin's brother-in-law as a, as a very easy instigator of this Kaganovich. It couldn't, Ukrainian history couldn't go without a Jewish, a Jewish uh, uh, puppet, some Jew to blame. I mean, uh, all, all of Jewish history is like that. You know, you find a Jew and you blame him. So, so what you're saying may explain why non-Jews forgot about it. And I don't care about why non-Jews forgot about it, because even if there was no famine, no, no person in Russia would care about 100,000 Jews killed in 1918 and 1922. I'm talking about why Jews forgot about it. That's my, and no Jew in America even knows about the famine in the Ukraine. I mean, Robert, what's his name? Robert Conquest or others have written about it, but except for a few academics who reads these books, how many Jews in America know about the famine in the Ukraine? Very few. But why do Jews? Now we have a war going on between America, between uh, Russia and Ukraine, with America spending over $60 billion of aid to the Ukraine. And American Jews are sitting and crying about what's going on in the Ukraine. You know, we, I'm a traditional Jew. and we don't have a mandate to take revenge on our enemies. We don't. But the Tehillim and our prayer says, Kael Nekomos Hashem. Nekoma, revenge, is between two names of God. It's between the name of Kael and between Hashem, which indicates that revenge is in the power of God. Now we, and we Jews, at least traditional Jews, See God's manifestation in this world through history. God manifests itself through history. We have a state of Israel creating in 1948. If we are believing Jews or traditional Jews, well, you know, was it just a, 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 a you know, just a, a mistake? Was it, uh, or, or does it have some meaning for Jewish history? Well, you know, I posit that it has some meaning for Jewish history. I posit every major historical event that happens has some meaning for Jewish history. I posit that Jews who arrived in the United States early, what is it, 1638, when the first Jews arrived, had some meaning in Jewish history. If that's true, if, if events in the world, if God doesn't speak to the world through history, then I have nothing to say, really. I have nothing to say. But if we do believe that the way God manifests himself through to Jews and to the world is through history, then what's going on now between Russia and Ukraine is God's way, not Jewish. We're not doing anything to kill not a single Ukrainian, but it's God's way of saying, hey, you guys, you killed since 1648, you killed over a half million Jews. You destroyed Jewish communities completely. You wiped them off the face of the earth. You raped tens of thousands of Jewish women. Now you pay. Now you pay. And as an acquaintance of mine said that he met an old Russian woman who came here in the last 20 years, and she said, and she's not a religious woman, but a Jewish woman, and she said, you know, isn't it a miracle of God that the Ukrainians are resisting the Russians? 
so the Russians are bombing them off the face of the earth. And isn't it a miracle of God that the so-called president of Ukraine is a so-called Jew who's stubborn enough not to surrender, and he's causing even more damage to Ukrainians. And how true that is, how true that is. And no Jew in the United States seems to understand this. Why? Because we all want to be liberals. We all want to be woke. We're also concerned about the Ukrainians. Hey, I'm not saying that we should organize bands of roving Jews and go to uh, a Zhitomir Kherson and, and kill Ukrainians. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying God is acting through history. He's acting through history. And these people, this whole country of Ukraine has never apologized for what it did. Zelensky, Shmelinsky, it doesn't matter if the president in Biden's word of Ukraine is the most beautiful woman in the world. It doesn't matter. They've never apologized. They've never offered reparations for, to Jews. Never. Khmelnytsky's statue stands in every park in every city in the Ukraine. That Luria is on stamps of the new Ukrainian government, of the new Ukrainian state. Now, the Germans are better than the Ukrainians. At least most Germans under the age of 100 know what their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents did and are apologetic about it. They're, very, they're embarrassed about it. They're apologetic. They've offered reparations to individual Jews. They've offered reparations to the state of Israel, not the Ukraine. Not to Ukraine. Why doesn't? But, why uh, don't but you how, how, how? What? I have a question. How, how can you blame Ukrainians for not remembering history if Jews themselves don't remember it? And Zelensky is a prime example of it. He's he's no he's not he's a, he's a completely my, ignorant about all of it. My speech is both to Jews. Zelensky is a Jew, and many other people in the Ukraine in the government are Jewish. And my speeches to the people in Ukraine. There, there is an intelligentsia in Ukraine, no? There are college professors. You know, even a place, uh, a place. I don't know where, what you would call Slovakia. Even a place like Slovakia, which had a puppet government during World War II, headed by a Catholic priest, Monsignor. No, he wasn't a Monsignor. I'm sorry, I misspoke. Father Joseph Tiso. He was a Catholic priest. Even there, in, 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 in Slovakia is now an independent republic after, uh, after Czechoslovakia fell apart after uh, around 20 years ago. Even in Slovakia, there's a debate. There's a debate in the country. People are aware that, that Tiso was a collaborator. People are aware that Tiso was involved in the deportation of the Jews. And as a matter of fact, the main debate in Slovakia about Tiso is not Tiso collaborating with the Germans. The main debate in Slovakia is Tiso helping deport the Jews in, in, in Slovakia. That's the main debate, even among, if I can use the word, the Goyen there. But in Ukraine, there's no such debate. There's no such debate. In Ukraine. Why? The Ukrainians are stupider than the Slovaks? No. They just want to ignore it because their, their history is a million times worse. If someone came out with a real history, there are apologists in the United States too. And there, is a there are apologists in the United States for the Ukrainian activity who call themselves rabbis and have long beards down to their puppet. There are all Okay, listen, let, let, me, let me ask you something. You, your expectations is that the people should know and say sorry, but nobody says sorry. You know, you, you, you brought up Germans. Maybe the only reason Germans uh, said sorry is... Uh, 
because they were defeated. But if, if, if you go to a more ancient history and you, you take the history of Indo-European languages, and it turns out that all the half of the world, or maybe more than half of the world, they speak Indo-European languages because as a contemporary genetic studies showed up, there were invasion of people from our favorite Ukrainian steppes. And those people invaded and conquered half of the world. Not only they, according to genetic material again, killed uh, all male population because people looked up in genes and suddenly there's a replacement of male genes which coincides with invasions from the steppes. So now you have a whole half of the world, uh, all male population killed. Uh, the, pop, uh, the remnants of the population turned into speaking foreign languages, which is became the Indo-European group of languages. And, uh, you know, naturally it's been so far that nobody remembers it. So there are, there are such events, maybe uh, such events everywhere in mm -hmm. history where there's a massacre that, that is not remembered. So my question is, my question is, forget about the Ukrainians. They, they have a, a natural interest to forget about those things. Nobody wants it to remember. And as you, you yourself said, you know, Jews don't like to speak about rapes. They don't want to remember. Then, then you mentioned in a previous post that we said that Lubavitch Rebbe himself wanted to forget. He wanted to forget what happened in Russia. He wanted to forget what happened in, uh, in Holocaust. He wanted, as you said, a clean slate. So the, the question here is not about Ukrainians forgetting, but about the Jews that don't remember. Well, listen, it's a two-pronged thing. Number one is, for whatever reason, the Ukraine has not shown any regret or any, any, um, any gestures. All they talk about is Israel supporting them. Why should Israel support them? I mean, what 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 did they do for Israel? They want they're angry that Israel isn't supporting them, or you know, why should Israel support them? You know, Israel would support them maybe if Zelensky got up and said, you know, Babi Yar was a national shame. If Zelensky got up and said, you know, what happened in 1919, 1921 was was a disaster for our Ukrainian image, but nothing was said, nothing was done. They don't care, you know, and level so, you know, it, it's so. It's all based on a negative psychology, and meaning people don't support Ukraine because they love Ukrainians. People support Ukraine because they hate Putin. Listen, that may be, but, you know, um, to me personally, and I'm not going to, here I, I'm not going to hold anything back. I don't care about Putin. I, I see a nation of Ukraine with a history of uh, since 1648 of massive, to call it anti-Semitic is a joke because, you know, Admiral Horthy, the regent of Hungary called himself Europe's number one anti-Semite. So that was, that people took him seriously, but Admiral Horthy was a classic anti-Semite. Oh, we'll keep the Jews out of this industry. We'll have a numerous clauses in university. The Ukrainians aren't anti-Semites. They're mass murderers. 
This is a nation of mass murders over multi-generations. It's not one generation. Started in 1648 and went on until 1945. And if not, and you know, you can blame Stalin for the famine. But if not for Stalin, the Ukrainians would still be killing Jews. You know, if not for the Red Army victory in 1922 by Trotsky, they'd still be killing Jews. There wouldn't be a Jew left in the Ukraine. And, you know, there was a painter here in the United States who came from Slonim, from Russia. He's no relative of mine, Nochum Alpert. I don't know if he's still alive or not. And Nochum Alpert was asked, why aren't there any uh, memorials in Yiddish or in Hebrew to the Jews that were killed in, in, during the Holocaust in Russia? So he said, listen, if there were such things in Hebrew or in Yiddish, the Ukrainians would quickly um, deface them. And, you know, he's right. You know, he, he is right. That, and, you know, so, yes, the, the Soviet regime was, was, may have been a, uh, a terrible thing for Ukrainians in terms of the famine. But, you know, the same Soviet regime not only saved the Ukrainian Jewish population in 1921, but, you know, then again, it saved over a half million Jews during World War II, because most of the Holocaust survivors today, today they're very few alive, but let's say after 1945, were people who spent the war years in Russia. I met Russian Jews who came in 19, uh, I mean, that's something Menachem Begin writes in the introduction to his book. He says, Jews owe an everlasting thank, I'm quoting him now because I memorized this, Jews owe an everlasting thank to the Red Army for saving over a half million Jews during World War II. Franklin Roosevelt couldn't let the St. Louis with 200 Jews on board in, but for whatever reason, and we don't have to ask Sigmund Freud to psychoanalyze Stalin, but for whatever reason, something like 750,000 Jews from Poland, Galicia, Poland, found a safe haven in Russia during the war. Lucy Davidowitz, a recognized Holocaust scholar, writes that at most there were 120,000 concentration camp survivors, at most. So where are all these Holocaust survivors? I'm not accusing them of being phony. They were in Russia during the war. And David Fishman, who's another recognized scholar of Eastern European Jewish history, who's written some fine monographs on the city of uh, Shklov and, and on about the Navaradaka Yeshiva movement and other such things. David Fishman uh, wrote an article in the Jewish Week, which I clipped too. And he said that now that we're over the Red Scare, we're 40 years past the Red Scare, we can say openly that we owe a thanks to the Red Army for saving so many Jews into the, into the Soviet Union. You know, when I, I'm at a certain age, when I remember the, the war against communism, the, almost, it was called a Cold War, but it, it was even more than a Cold War. And all these Jews who were in Russia were passing themselves off as being concentration camp survivors because it really wasn't in good taste to say that they survived the war in Russia because the Russians were our enemies. And then the same thing is true with who liberated the concentration camps. Suddenly, every single Jew I ever met in the 1950s and 60s was liberated by the United States Army. It's only 30 years later that we began to realize that most of the concentration camps were liberated by the Red Army, not by the American Army. 
And, you know, so the, 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 there, there is some truth to it. And you know what? I'm not a left winger. I'm not a socialist. I'm not a communist. I'm not a Marxist. I am a hard right person, hard right. And maybe to the right of, of the Republican Party. But the truth is the truth. The truth is the truth. So, you know. I'll just add that. Why do Jews not remember? Because no one tells them about it, because our Jewish leadership is pathetic. That our Jewish leadership doesn't know anything about this. As Mayor Kahana so uh, presciently said, when a Jew meets a Jewish value in the United States, he trips right over it. And that's the truth. Jews don't know first thing about Jewish history until Elie Wiesel came along in the 1970s. And that's a good 30 years after the Holocaust. Very few American Jews knew anything about the Holocaust. And then Gerald Green and W and um, NBC network in response, I don't know if response is the right word, but in conjunction with the um, black miniseries, I forgot already what it was about. It was called, who, who did that black miniseries about slavery? I don't know. Which was a very, it was a very important, it was a very important miniseries that went on for a week or two about slavery. And then, um, so they did one about the, the Holocaust. Gerald Green, I, it was based on Gerald Green, the producer or the writer. It shook up the whole American Jewish community. I remember this uh, in 1977, 78. But no one, no one, no popular, the popularization of what went on in the Ukraine as regards to massacres has, is awaiting a redeemer. It's awaiting someone to write a popular book about this. Yes, we have some scholarly studies that have come out in the last few years. One of them, which I started to say, and I will say this, and I don't care if it's man who's listening, if he's not listening anyway, is a total whitewash of the Ukrainians because this man married a Ukrainian Gieras. So he's, he whitewashes the Ukrainians. I don't care if he gets angry at what I said, you know, uh, and scholars in Israel have black. Who is that? Who is that? I won't mention his name, even though Aye, I said I will go. I'm not going to mention his name, but it doesn't matter, you know. But there are other books. I just read a few a half year ago a book by a, by a Russian. I don't know if he's Jewish or not. It doesn't matter to me if, if he's Jewish or not. It's about the uh, Red Army and the uh, the war between the whites and the Reds and uh, you know Russian Civil War, and it includes a lot of material about the Ukrainians. A pretty objective book, and um, you know there there are other books. I mean, there's a, I can't remember this man. He's in the University of Michigan. He's a young scholar. He's he's just finished writing a book about the same subject. Uh, so th there are there are if a person wants to know what went on, it's available in English. Uh, Cherry cover is in Yiddish, so it's not that easily. Um, there are books. There are books in Russian. I meant to uh, translate some of the chapters. Uh, chapters. I just. I don't have a heart. It's so horrible. About what? About the Ukrainian pogroms. So all I'm saying to American Jews, and I've had arguments in my in my synagogue with people. You know, before Jews in America start sending, and they have, they sent millions of dollars of. Um, aid, fine, you want to send aid to other Jews in the Ukraine, that's fine. But before you start sending billions of dollars of 
of aid to Ukraine, find out something about the Ukrainians. Find out about Jewish Ukrainian history. And when you find out, you know, ask, ask Zelensky, ask the Ukrainian ambassador in, in New York, uh, you know, are you, are you guys ready to apologize for what happened? I mean, are you guys, you know, I'm not asking for reparations, although that would be nice. Um, you know, are you ready to apologize? Are you ready to take responsibility for what happened? Are you ready to, uh, to, to see that there needs to be justice here? I mean, uh, you know, it's, it, it's like blacks in America say that there's no closure on their suffering as slaves. And you know what? They may be right. They claim closure is not here. And all my liberal Jewish friends smile and agree, you know, there need to be reparations. There need to be, what is that project that the New York Times has, 1639, a 1699 project, and blacks need all sorts of special, but when it comes to Jews, closure, closure. Let's, let's forget about the 100,000 Jews killed in Ukraine. Let's forget about it. Let's forget about Baba Yar. Let's forget about everything. Why? Because Jews have no pride. They have absolutely no pride. And, and because they want to be like Goyim, just like the wasps in America didn't suffer, so we didn't suffer either. But you know what? Maybe, just maybe, some of these, um, I don't know what you would call them, some of these liberal, they're not really liberal, but some of these Jews in America who say that they're not white, Maybe they're right. Maybe Jews in America are not really white. We're not black, but we're not white either. We have our own special history. And our history, um, although, you know, people laugh at it, um, you know, Heinrich Gratz, who was the pioneer of Jewish history, called our history Leiden and Lerner, which is suffering and knowledge, which is, to a certain extent, um, really were the main points of Jewish history, you know, suffering persecutions and our knowledge, our uh, Talmudic knowledge, rabbinic knowledge or whatever. And, and you know, and then later on, Salo Baron came along and uh, as a Jewish historian and opened up new vistas of the cultural, economic, social history of the Jews, which is fine. But, but you know, a good part of our history is suffering. And Jews in America don't want to remember it or don't know. I mean, uh, but before, my, my point here is that before we go gung-ho, over Ukraine, we need to know about Ukrainian Jewish history, relationships, and no one knows, no one talks about it. Why? And is it like, you know, are we supporting Denmark? Is Denmark in a war with uh, with Sweden, and we're sending over thirty billion dollars of aid to Denmark? Yeah, the Danes were were in a great to help the Jews, but you know, the Ukraine isn't exactly Denmark. It, it's a, it was, a, it's a, the whole country is a killing field. The whole country is a killing field of Jews. The whole country, wherever you go. You know, you know, that's what it is. And people want to say yes, you want to say no. Okay. Speaking of closure, let's, uh, let's, I think, I think we made our point, you made our, our, our point more precisely. I think we should um, just pause and think about this subject for a while. And this, this way we can go back and return to bashing Chabad again. <laughs> well, I just I do will add those things that um, I, I I do agree that the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and I've raised this point many times, um, that the Lubavitcher Rebbe downplayed uh, the Holocaust and um, downplayed um, pogroms. Yeah. Bad, 
I, I don't mean bad, but downplay the sad parts of contemporary. And don't don't get don't get don't get Gulak off, off the hook here, okay? I'm not getting anything off the hook. He downplayed many many of the sad parts of Jewish history because he wanted an upbeat message for American Jews. And you know, Lubavitcher was an engineer. He wasn't a psychologist, and it's so clear if you look at his his whole career in America as a Rebbe. First of all, you know he wasn't he wasn't a rabbi. You know, I'm not doubting his knowledge, but he wasn't a rabbi. You know, he didn't have the classic rabbinic training. Yes, there is something to never going to yeshiva. That's fantastic. Like Rabbi Soloveitchik never went, or Mish Feinstein never went, or Balashev. There, there's something about it because you're more of an independent thinker. You don't have to follow the regimen. But on the other hand, not going to yeshiva, you lose the mentorship of, of, of giants, total giants who you study under. I mean, you lose that. And, you know, it comes across when you take a look at the Lubavitcher's biography. And I don't care if those biographies were written by Boruch Oberlander or if they were written by Shimi Deutsch or if they were written by... Um, uh, Leifer, Laufer, whatever his name is, or if they're written by the, the great Rabbi Talushkin, uh, how much was Talushkin paid to write his, uh, you know, his, his, whatever you want to call it, screed. Um, but what comes across is who are Lubavitcher Rebbe's teachers? His teachers were in Berlin. I was just looking at Shemi Deutsch's book. These were his teachers secular Jewish and non-Jewish professors. So where, where did he have rabbinic teachers? Who, who, his father, fine, his father was, but who did he study with? I mean, even his father-in-law, when, when did he study with his father-in-law? For a weekend when he came in from Berlin to Warsaw? I mean, he had the opportunity to study with his father-in-law. He got married in what, 29? He could have stayed with his father-in-law for another, what is, what is it? 10 years or something let's let's let, but let, i think we, we we you know it's, it's too much of a different subject right now let's just no, let's no, just no, wrap no, it no, up yeah i just wanted to say one thing that that you know, no, don't, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I love bashing Chabad. I love that. You know, I love every minute of it. But but right no, now, it's it's a different subject. You know. I just want to say one thing. I get off the subject, but I have to say this. He wasn't a psychologist. He wasn't a sociologist. And, you know, he mis he misread American Jews. He misread that the great, you know, people may get angry. And I, I will, I've been told people got angry at it. But the greatest shot in the arm. It doesn't mean that I that I say that we should have these things, because sometimes, you know, a shot in the arm is 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 very painful, and but the the shot in the arm that revived Jewish pride in America was the awareness of the Holocaust and the state of Israel. These two things are what Zalman Shachter, uh, you know, Rabbi Zalman Shachter, uh, Shalomi said were Sinai events. I mean, as I wrote to you, we have a oral law and we can add to the Sinai events. And I think, you know, you're right. You've made your point. The Gulag is another Sinai event. And uh, there are probably others that I, uh, you know, I don't claim that I know everything. I, I, you know, I sound like it, but I don't, I, I really don't believe that I don't. There are probably whole chapters in Jewish history that I'm missing, especially among Sephardic Jews. So, I, I, you know, I don't know anything about them. Um, okay. But,
but you know, I, I just wanted to, you know, and 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 the, the Obama chairman never spoke about these things, but um, you know, I'm going to be generous. I, he was probably very pained by them himself. Okay, I'm sure. All right. Okay, thank you for the um, opportunity to express uh, some thank controversial you. views. Yeah, thank you for your, uh, for your ideas and history. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. These views are not very popular, but, uh, you know. We are, not, we are now a station completely have nothing to do with it, of course, but then I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the the podcast should be renamed, um, you know, um, something about Russian Jewry, you know, because uh, in fact, uh, Lubavitch, you know, really is Russian Jewry. That is the thought. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take Thank care. You very much. I, yeah. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Uh, bye bye. Bye bye. Um,